This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Okay, so before we get to the Steelers trivia, your couple questions about your career as uh, an official um, in high school. Um, you're coming from Western Pennsylvania, which has a lot of talent, obviously. Did you see any games or did you officiate any games for guys or kids that went on to play in the NFL? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, probably my very first varsity game, uh, a, a kid named Brian Milne, which you may not have heard heard of before. This kid has a fantastic story. And I've said it on a couple other podcasts. I was on the uh, History of College Football a couple months ago. And Brian Milne, uh, in his very first game, set the Erie County League uh, rushing uh, title. He, he gained the, the most yardage of any player ever uh, as a junior. And he was tackled right on top of me. I was playing umpire, which umpires like right in the, behind the linebackers and it's a position I hated all my life but that was my first varsity game and this kid sets a record gets tackled right on top of me because I was so far out of position and thank god he set the record on that play because it took me some time to my team my crewmates to drag me out and uh, you know brush off my stripes a little bit you know mm-hmm. slap me around uh, but he they presented him the game ball he ended up uh, getting some form of cancer. I can't remember if it was leukemia or Lou Gehrig's disease or something. He missed his entire senior se- season. Uh, so he missed his whole se- senior season of high school. Joe Paterno takes him on at Penn State. This is the late eight, 1980s. Um, takes him on at Penn State. Uh, has a brilliant career there. Has three touchdowns in Penn State's greatest comeback ever under Paterno. So that's you know about 40 years of thing. Uh, he scores three touchdowns in that comeback victory. Uh, goes on, plays with Cincinnati Bengals. I think he played uh, played with a couple other teams. You know, wasn't real big in the NFL, but I got to do him. So that was quite an honor. Uh, James Conner, you know, Pittsburgh mm-hmm. Steeler. He he. Uh, Played at McDowell High School. I did quite a few of his games as a referee. Um, let's see. Um, Bob Sanders, uh, great safety for the Indianapolis Colts probably about a yeah. decade ago. He, he's yeah, from here. Uh, he played. Um, now, some guys I didn't officiate, but uh, Mark Stepanowski, I went to high school with him here. He was Troy Aikman's center on that great Dallas Cowboys line of the uh, 1990s. Okay. Jimmy Johnson. So, you know, so you, you know, go ahead. No, go, that's, so we had quite a few uh, players from Erie, just the Erie area going to the NFL. If you count all of Western Pennsylvania, oh my gosh, you go on forever. Do you find that most of the players that go on to the NFL come from bigger schools like the, I don't, I don't know what the, um, the uh, class divisions are, but like 6A, 5A, or do you think there's plenty of talent that comes from like the smaller schools that maybe not a lot of people pay attention to? Well, it's probably a majority of the bigger schools. Uh, James Connor came from one of the largest schools in Western Pennsylvania, uh, McDowell High School. Uh, that's the school district I live in. Um, Bob Sanders came from the high school that I attended, which is uh, an all-boys parochial school here in Erie. So it's the next level down in uh, that level of football. We, I think we go up to 6A now. Uh, Cathedral Prep is a 5A. McDowell's a 6A. Uh, Brian Milne, who I told you about uh, 
got tackled on top of me. He came from a double A school, you know, one of the smaller schools. So mm-hmm. it's a mixed bag, but uh, had some good success from different schools here in our area anyway. Nice. Yeah. Like after we had spoke, I kind of wondered if you had uh, had the opportunity to coach anybody that had gone. So it must've been cool to see someone like James Conner at the grassroots level and then to see like his success story and like some of the other guys. So I'm glad we, uh, you get to share that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good question. And, and, and then also you mentioned how you, um, as a ref, you develop like a uh, rabbit ears for people who are just constantly, you know, shouting at you from the sidelines, like be a parent or coaches anything like that uh do you have any funny stories about coaches just flipping out at you or even maybe like some of the kids well you try i tried to always have fun with it and what you want to try to avoid having rabbit ears having rabbit ears means you're hearing everything you want to at least give the appearance that you don't hear anything that's going on you know it's uh a a couple funny things first of all you know i got uh when i got married my second marriage i'm in now uh i was already a football official and it was right about that time um, my, my wife and I were married that that uh, commercial was on where they had to, the, I forget who it was even for, but the, there was an official that was just taking a, you know, the coaches in his ears, just chewing on him, and he's standing there stone-faced, and the announcer's like, how could he, you know, what kind of training do you do to do this? And then it shows him sitting on his recliner and his wife in his ear. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's always my joke. That was my training with my wife. She doesn't appreciate that too much. But you... I mean, a lot of the coaches that I did, you know, I, I did their games for years and years and they coached for years and years. So we, we had a, a certain respect, you know, I don't know if I'd call it, you know, friendship, but you know each other, you know, you're, they, they respect what you do if you, you give them a good game. And um, so, so we had a lot of that, uh, you know, coaches would, uh, I, I had the, the probably when I first started officiating, the coach from my, my former high school that I graduated from, he was probably the top coach in the area, uh, Minna George. He's uh, long since passed away. But I had him at both at my former school and he moved on to another high school in the area. And he would constantly come out and just, you know, because he was my teacher in school for four years. You know, I had him as a football coach, you know, all that stuff. And he'd try to, you know, they always try to gain an advantage on you. And he came out and just was going, you know, ape crazy on the field uh close call play and as a matter of fact it was an intentional grounding play that i called on his quarterback and his quarterback you know he's about ready to get pummeled he just he just threw the ball out of bounds and you can't do that in high school uh you know it doesn't matter with the tackle box it it may be now but at the time it didn't matter so he tosses the ball out of bounds i minute george calls timeout comes out and just goes you know nuts he's he's out there just stomping his feet throwing things up in the air and everything i finally said hey are you done and he's like, well, yeah, I think so. I said, does this mean I'm not going for Thanksgiving dinner this year? And he's like, <laughs> he's like, oh, shut the hell up. And he you know, walks out the field. So you have things like that. Um, I had a coach one time, and I'm not going to say names, but he came out and he's like, you know, before he comes up to me, another close call play, you know, there's always those bang, bang calls where you get the, you catch the heat, you know, he comes out and he goes, he goes, you know, I got to put on a show here to keep my job. So he comes out just, you know, rants and raves and everything. And, and he gets done. He's like, okay, thanks. I'm done with my program. And he's gonna, <laughs> I hope I win an Emmy, you know. So you have things like that that aren't, aren't necessarily, they're mad. Sometimes they're mad. Sometimes they're steaming mad and they have a right to be. And I always tell my, my cohorts that I worked with, hey, their job is on the line. You know, one of our calls, I mean, it's their livelihood that's on the line. They could lose their job over this, you know. Uh, we're... You know, us out in the field, we're, you know, we're part-timers uh, three months a year and we can go back to our, our livelihoods. So, 
you know, there's a lot of pressure on some of these coaches and we appreciate it, but yeah, try to have fun with them too a little bit. Yeah, I think it's definitely easy to forget because a lot of those coaches can be teachers at the high school, but then there's some who are just coaching football. I mean, I one guy that I interviewed who coaches football in Texas at the high school level, and we talked about you know being hired to be fired, and I can imagine you know obviously in Texas it's intense as it is in like South Florida, and I can imagine in a competitive place like Western Pennsylvania, a lot of those guys are there, you know, doing a year round job so they really want to put their best out there right right you know probably anywhere you know because probably i I can't say this for all teachers i don't sit in their classrooms but i'll bet you a lot of times uh coaches get hired at the high school because of their coaching ability not because they're great teachers you know it's just a fact of life fact of life there so something you gotta think about yeah they'll find a position for you to keep you around for what you're good at right right all right you ready for some uh steelers trivia Sure, absolutely. Okay, so each of us have uh, 15 questions, and um, I have a paper here that we can uh, keep score as if either one of us is going to win anything, but, you know. <laughs> good, uh, a brand good, new good car. Ja- yeah, that'll be the day. <laughs> Clown car. <laughs> yeah, so I figure we'll just alternate. I'll um, give the question, then give you your options, then you'll have the chance to uh, say which one you think it is, and then you'll ask me the question, and we'll just keep going back and forth that way. Sound good? No, sounds great. Sounds great. Okay, cool. All right, first question. This player was the first draft choice in Pittsburgh Steelers history, which at the time would have been the Pittsburgh Pirates. The mm-hmm. options are William Shakespeare, Larry Lutz, Bob Train, or Bobby Grayson. Mm, boy, this is going way back. So this would be late 30s, I think, is when the first NFL draft was 39. 36. I'm going to – 36. I think I'm going to go with your last choice with Grayson. I'm not sure if William, it's right. William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare. Oh, the poet. That's right. <laughs> this guy he had um, many talents. <laughs> yeah. He had uh, good health, too. He stuck around for a while. Yeah. Hey, that's a great question. I like that one. Yeah, he actually. I come um, up with that. <laughs> he, he actually, um, I think he played at Notre Dame and he was in, I think, what they call like the greatest college football game at that time, which was against Ohio State. And he got drafted by the Steelers, but he never played. So he just decided to go into business because pro football didn't pay anything at the time. So he just went into business. Yeah, you know, that happened a lot in that draft because the actually the it was a Burwanger was the, the first player drafted in the NFL. And I was in that 36 draft or whenever it was, Jay Burwanger, uh, by okay. the Eagles. And he never played it down. And they had a big controversy getting him. And he never played it down in the NFL. He did, you know, he was a doctor or something, you know. And what was the... Other, uh, what was the controversy trying to get them? Well, they were, you know, the NFL was trying to get players in. It was their first year having a draft. Um, uh-huh. I think the story goes, uh, you know, Upton Bell was on, on my program a couple months ago. And his father, Burt Bell, is the one that was commissioner when they, oh, I'm sorry, before he was commissioner. He was the owner of the Eagles, founder of the Eagles. And he uh, talked the NFL teams into having a draft. They were the first league to have a draft, I believe, anywhere in the world. And because, you know, Chicago Bears or the New York Giants, they were the big market teams. They got all the players. They won the championships every year. And, mm-hmm. you know, Bell and, uh, you know, the Roonies, you know, they went up and said told the other teams, hey, you know, this teams, this league's not going to survive if you have two teams winning it all the time and all the rest of them are has-beens. That's why so many teams are dropping out. You know, you had, I mean, look at all the teams, you know, Canton Bulldogs and, you know, Duluth Eskimos and the Pottsville Maroons. They all 
they all expired because they they couldn't win a championship. So it right. gave a little bit of more of a fair base. Uh, the NFL drafted and other sports adopted it too. You know, the lowest ranked team from the year before they get the first pick, and it's been pretty successful for all sports, I think. Maybe yeah, absolutely. If, uh, I'm just I'm just kind of curious how those smaller teams survived if almost none of the guys ended up going to the teams that they were drafted to. Yeah, yeah. I, talk talk about a plan backfiring. Yeah. Well, I I know how the Steelers survived. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a trivia question, but uh, you know, was it uh, Art Rooney uh, allegedly was with Tim Mara up at Saratoga Springs Racetrack, a horse track, in okay. like 1930. So Steelers started 33. It was like 35. Two years uh-huh. into it, he was barely making payroll. But he hit like a an exact or a trifecta at the horse track and won like you know seventy five grand and it paid for the next five years of his payroll for the Steelers. Wow! So wow, <laughs> that's that's how they survived. Good fortune, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the first. Uh, that was the first divine intervention for that franchise. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then they had to suffer for four years after he did that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what you get. Okay, my first question, it's a Steelers-related question, okay? Okay. Uh, what broadcaster went out with a bang? His final NFL game called was Super Bowl forty-eight when the Steelers defeated the Cardinals 27-23. to And here's some choices for you. Got Dick Enberg, Hank Stram, John Madden, Kurt Gowdy, Bryant Gumble. John Madden. Yep, absolutely right. That was his last game he called, and it was a Steelers game. The, what, what's the, now the the irony in that is just great, isn't it? Oh yeah. I mean, aside aside from the Raiders, I think he must have talked about the Steelers probably more than any other team in the NFL in his broadcasting career. And I don't I don't think it was intentional on his part. Just people have to bring it up almost every time he does a Steelers game, that immaculate reception game. Oh yeah, he he was still pretty bitter about that. Probably to this day. I mean, I think he just turned like eighty four years old or something recently, and he's I think he's still bitter about that game that happened in nineteen seventy three. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And it seems to me every time I hear him talk about it, he's more bitter about the uh, not even the Jack Tatum French Fuqua uh, hit, but it's um what was the linebacker's name on that play that could have made the tackle like Phil Valpano uh, Val Valpano or it starts yeah. with a V. Yeah, I think like he got clipped on that play, and the referees didn't didn't call it. So I think he's more upset about that than the actual collision. Right, and you know, and then one time it was you know Franco didn't catch the ball clean; it was off the ground. It was, you know, yeah. it hit it didn't hit Fuqua or hit Fuqua didn't hit Tatum. You know, there's so many contrary. Uh, Franco stepped out of bounds down the sideline. There's so many yeah. different things. There's just a great yeah, play. It's, I, I love yeah. the. The mysticism of it, you know, that nobody really knows, but it's just, I, I love it. Yeah, That's it's part of the, the Yeah, it's like the perfect, it's like the perfect mystery to have, uh, to have it as a legend. You know, everything just kind of went great to keep it, to keep it mysterious. Mm-hmm. And that's something I wanted to point out. I mean, I, I wanted to point out before we started this, but I mean, just think about this franchise that we're talking about tonight. I mean, they probably have the greatest play in NFL history. I mean, as arguably, I don't think I, I think if you ask ten people, six of them are going to say the immaculate reception. Anybody that's mm-hmm. watched it or saw it, you know, happening, uh, probably, arguably, the best play in Super Bowl history. You know, I, I still say is you know James Harrison's uh, interception of Kurt Warner and going 101 yards or whatever to end the half. You know, he if he goes out of bounds or falls short, there's it's nothing for the Steelers. 
I mean, he's gassed. He's got people falling all over him, and he dives in the end zone. What a dramatic play that was. Uh, and it really changed the, the fortunes of that game for the Steelers. You know, so just some, some great things that's happened to the Steelers franchise that to be proud of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for greatest Super Bowl play, I thought you were going to go San Antonio Holmes with the um, toe tap in the corner. And I think if I had to pick one, I would probably go with that one. Would you? Um, and, and, well, as great as the Harrison play was, the San Antonio Holmes touchdown won it for them. Well, I guess I guess the the strip sack by Woodley at the end of the game. I think it was Woodley kind of won of the game. But you know that go ahead score was really just a, a miraculous catch. I mean, it was a great throw. I mean, you had three Cardinal defenders right there. Um, but I think it would, that that play to me it just stands out more. Even though I think the, the sheer athleticism of Harrison and the you know the will and endurance and the the pursuit on the defense to, you know, create blocking for him down the sideline was incredible. But yeah, I mean, that San Antonio Holmes just still sticks with me whenever I watch it. I get chills. I mean, it was definitely, that was clutch. It was a, it was a great play, but I said, trying to say it, it was a four point game. Steelers won 27, 23 in that game. Uh, that was a 14 to 10 point swing by Harris doing it. Cause the Cardinals were going to score. They were on the one yard line or two yard line. They were right in there and for him to pick that off and score a touchdown on it, you know, that could be a 14-point swing in a game they won by four. You know, that, it might have been out of reach in the second half for the Steelers. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a, was definitely a good momentum momentum shift, I guess, or momentum boost. But I think one thing um, that I still put San Antonio above Harrison is that when you look at the play, um, Larry Fitzgerald is running down the sideline, and he's actually about to tackle um, Harrison. But the Steeler players are so excited that they're running down the sideline with them. And one of the players coming in from the Steelers sideline actually gets in Fitzgerald's way. So he can't, so it breaks his stride and he uh, doesn't, he's not able to catch up to him. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. The Steelers have so had their controversy from sideline interference too before. <laughs> and that's, that's true. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. The, uh, Mike Tomlin, uh, Tomlin on Mike Tomlin Tomlin move, yeah. 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 What was, uh, Jacoby, Jacoby Myers, Jacoby was it? Jacoby Jones, that's right. Jacoby yeah. Jones, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was that was funny. I mean, that was a great meme for probably a solid month. Right, right. Yeah. I think it still is. You know, Baltimore yeah. fans still remind us of that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, cool, man. All right, so second question I have is, which players scored the very first touchdown in Steelers history? Do we have – we have Bill Dudley, Martin Kotler, Angelo Bravelli, or John Henry Johnson? Hmm. I think it was a little bit before John Henry Johnson. I know it was, and I think right. it was definitely before Dudley. I'm gonna, uh, what was your third choice? Carvelli? An- Angelo Bravelli or oh, Marlon Cotler? I'm going to go with Cotler. You got it. Okay. <laughs> Lucky. I, got it. I almost had that to phone actually- a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, actually, that was actually a defensive uh, return for a touchdown interception. Really? Oh, yeah, interesting. So that set the tone for the franchise. Well, you've really gone back in the way back machine on these ones. You're back. There. We're gonna get. We're gonna get more current. I just had to give some uh, some respect to the uh, the first generation. Uh, I go back there too, so don't worry. There we go. Cool. <laughs> okay, th- this next one sort of touches all yours. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna give you some stadiums, and I want you to tell me which stadium that I call out that the Steelers never called their home field. Okay. okay. Heinz Field, Comiskey Park, Three River Stadium, 
Scheib Park, Pitt Stadium, Forbes Field. Was it Kaminsky Park? No, because technically uh, when they were combined with the Cardinals during the World War II, Comiskey Park was their home field for the, the pit cards or the card pits or okay. and what, what was the um what was the second to last option? Pitt Stadium and Forbes Field were the last two options. And there's Scheib, let me call me Heinz Field, Comiskey Park, Three Rivers, Scheib Park, Pitt Stadium, Forbes Field. All right, it's uh, Scheib Park. No, that that no. was uh, when they were with combined with Philadelphia. Scheib Park was Pitt Stadium was never their home field. Okay, but was you know, that, that was, was that was, was that the home of the uh, like the Panthers? The Pitt Panthers had their own field. The Steelers never called it their home field, from what I could okay. find. Uh, they okay. they played, you know, if they didn't weren't com- let's say they weren't combined with the Eagles and the Cardinals during World War II, Forbes Field they went from like 1933 to 1970, uh, Three River Stadium, and then Heinz Field. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Okay. Cool. So we're uh, one on one right now, right? Right. Right. Cool. All right. Legendary Steelers lineman Mean Joe Green wore number 75 for most of his career. But in the beginning of his rookie year, what number did he wear? Was it 70, 72, 77, or 78? Hmm. Wow. That's that's before my, my memory of uh, see him. 1969 he came in, I believe. Whew. Uh, I'm going to go with 70. It was not 70. Not seventy. Hmm, I I have no idea then. Seventy-two. Seventy-two. They give any kind of a reason why he changed? Does it like uh, seventy-five have more meaning to him or something? I didn't find any reason. I just saw that midway through his rookie year, he had switched to seventy-five. Ah, interesting. Yeah. I know sometimes like they wear a number in college and it's not available when they first get on a team, and then all of a sudden becomes available. Somebody gets cut or you know whatever. Right traded or whatever and then they change numbers interesting oh boy you blanked me again that's a good question i think you're just warming up don't worry <laughs> all right this one's gonna start flowing this one's a little bit more mainstream okay 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 what season and player had the most single season rushing yards in it by a Steeler? jerome bettis 1997 willie parker 2006 Barry Foster, 1992, Franco Harris, 1997, or Le'Veon Bell, 2016? Mm. You said Franco was 1997? 1977. 1977. Um, I'm going to go Franco. Franco, no. Barry Foster in 1992 had 1,690 yards rushing. That's the most by a Steelers running back in their history. Wow, okay. And he only he only played for about four years with the team, right? Right, yeah. He was uh, When they went to the Super Bowl against the Cowboys the third time, the one that they lost, uh, he was like the darn near leading the, the league. I think Emmett Smith was the only one ahead of him, and they sort of went uh, – or no, you know what? They didn't, they didn't make it – I'm sorry. They didn't make it to the Super Bowl. They yeah. lost to the, the Chargers that year in the AFC Championship game. He didn't come back, and they had Bam Morris 
run for him the next year. And that's right. what he made. But, but he was, yeah, he was on fire and then he didn't come back and nobody ever really knows why. I don't know if he got injured or his feelings were hurt or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I read that he, um, he, I don't think he went to Cincinnati. He went to the Carolina Panthers, I think, for like a year. I think they cut him. And I think he was going to sign like a one-year deal with the Bengals. And he signed it. And then literally two days later, he said, I changed my mind and decided not to play for them. Yeah, so, something happened yeah. inside his, his mind or something. And uh, But he was at the top of his game, you know. He was, he was a good back. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, him and Bam Morris were pretty big, stocky guys, too. I mean, they were very similar. Right, right. You know, Bam Morris, I think he found some extracurricular activities that sort of derailed him, you know, similar yeah. to, you know, Le'Veon Bell, you know, sort of derailed his career a couple of yeah. times with the Steelers. Yeah, yeah. Cheech and Chong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, next question I got for you is, of the following Steelers, which ones have not scored a touchdown in a Super Bowl? We have Mike Wallace, Heath Miller, Randy Grossman, or Gary Russell? Uh, Wallace is what I'm going to pick on that. Wallace did actually score a touchdown in the really? – um, yeah, it was in the Super Bowl where they lost to the Packers. Ah, okay. Oh, boy. I forgot yeah. he was on that team. That's sure. right. Uh, uh, Antonio Brown was uh, a rookie that year. Yeah, and Brown had uh, two big catches in the two previous games, but didn't do anything in that Super Bowl. Yeah, they had what, Emmanuel Sanders and Antonio Brown were both rookies that year. And yeah. Wallace was only like a first-year player. So, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Good question. The answer is Heath Miller. Heath Miller? Heath Miller yeah. never had a touchdown in a Super Bowl. Wow. Never, yeah. Gosh. I mean, I think, I think Ben only had, in three Super Bowls, he's only thrown three touchdowns. I mean, he had that Santonio Holmes play in the corner of the right. end zone. Right. Then there was, I think, Hines Ward caught one when they were trying to claw back into that game right before halftime against the Packers. And then Mike Wallace in the fourth quarter caught a, caught one on the sideline. Yeah, that's right, because that other one that Hines Ward caught against Seattle, that was uh, thrown by Antoine Randall-L. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, hmm. Wow, another good question. Wow, you're stumping me. I'm, in, I'm embarrassed here. Uh I've got a good one for you here. And I had to do some digging on this because I couldn't even find this online anywhere. What Steelers receiving tandem had the most yardage in a season? Two two receivers. 2018, Antonio Brown and Juju. 2014, A.B. and Martavis Bryant. 2009, San Antonio Holmes and Heinz Ward. 2017, Antonio Brown and Juju. 1979, Stallworth and Swan, or 2015, Antonio Brown and Martavis Bryant. So, so I got two different years of Antonio Brown and Juju, two different years of Antonio Brown and Martavis Bryant in there. A San Antonio Holmes and Heinz Ward in 2009, and Stallworth and Swan. Um, what years were the uh, Martavis Bryant and on Antonio Brown combo? Twenty fourteen, A. B. and Martavis, and twenty fifteen. Hmm. And then the other one was uh, Juju and, uh, and Antonio Brown from two thousand eighteen. 
2018 and 2017 for you know, two separate years for both of those two together. I'm going to go 2018 for Juju and Brown. You are absolutely right. They had uh, Antonio Brown had 104 receptions, 1,297 yards. Juju was 111 for 1,426. Combined yardage, 2723. Uh, This kind of surprised me. The next closest was 2015, A.B. and Martavis Bryant. Combined yardage, 2608. So just over 100 yards more than 2015. I, I would have thought for sure it would have been, you know, maybe Holmes and Ward in 2009, but they only had 24-15 total that year. Yeah, I was going to I was leaning towards the 2015 with um Brian and Brown, but 2018 I think it was Ben had like over 5,000 yards. I don't remember his exact yards, but I think he I think him and Drew Brees were tied to the exact number for the lead in um in the lead that year. So, I guess if I had to pick one, that would probably be my best educated guess. I mean, actually, what I found is, I mean, because there was uh, four of them that had Antonio Brown. That 2015 season with Antonio Brown and Bryant, Antonio Brown had 136 receptions, 1,843 yards. You know, mm. Martavis added, you know, 50 receptions, 765. But, you know, what a, what a great season Antonio Brown had that year. I didn't realize he had 136. I I, I know I must have saw it, but I sort of forgot about it. You know, that's a great season. Yeah, he- yeah, I mean, he just had he had really some incredible years, and obviously everything would happen. It's easy to kind of, you know, for, forget now, but he really was an incredible receiver for you know really good period of time. And even Martavis Bryant too, you know, he had his chances, I guess, to really uh, flourish, but you know, just another one of those situations where you just couldn't really get it together to stay on the field. Right, right. I mean, just just to show you the different eras, you know, '79 was Stallworth and Swan's best season together on the field and and swan really didn't have that good of a season i think he was injured part of that season but uh they ended up having 1991 they were shy of 2000 so you know just a different era of course you had you know franco harris and rocky Blyer running the ball pretty well too so you didn't have yeah. to throw the ball as much I and mean, it was a different era but you know that's just just shows you uh some great receiving uh by all those tandems you know that's some that's some great uh great yardage there by the two yeah, the 2009 Hines and uh, Holmes combo was also kind of tempting to choose too, but I, I think that was kind of still a little bit before Ben really became, I guess, like the um, before he was really putting up big numbers. Yeah, I think that was, that seemed at the time where he was still kind of like the quarterback that was still trying to evade sacks, but still got sacked like five or six times a game. So I don't think he really put up like big numbers during that season. But, um, but yeah, I mean, those were still that was still a really good combo. But you know what? That San Antonio Holmes and Heinz Ward 2009 season. Okay, I, I told you most of the other guys were both in the hundreds when they caught, except for Martavis Bryant was a 50, and but AB made up for 136. Uh, they they probably at 2009 season probably the most yards per catch because San Antonio Holmes only had 79 catches for 1248 yards. Heinz Ward 95 receptions for 1167. They had 2415 total yardage together on you know less than uh, what is that 170 catches you know, basically. Yeah, that's pre- that's pretty good. Pretty good yardage. Yeah, I think it's definitely like a. Uh shows the difference between like Bruce Arians, right? Because that's Bruce Arians was always about the deep ball. Right, right. Yeah, and then Todd Haley came in and kind of cracked the whip on Ben. It's San Antonio Holmes was the master of the yak, you know, that yards after catch. He Oh yeah, he was, he was always, elusive. He's a escape artist, like Houdini sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And 
Hines could get it too, but I think Hines is more of the guy that just makes that tough catch and takes that big hit. Yeah, Hines reminds you a lot of Juju, doesn't he? They just they go over the middle and take that that tough catch when they have to. There, but Hines wasn't like the greatest athlete on the field. He was just uh, you know. I love the guy. He was just a gamer and he knew his routes were so clean and he could block and Juju has a lot of the same qualities, but he's a big man and, you know, big, strong, fast guy too, though, to boot. Yeah, I, I definitely think there is a similarity in their game. I mean, I think Hines probably just did it a little better, obviously, but I think, I think also too, Juju is probably more, more of a pure receiver. I shouldn't say pure receiver, but I think he's definitely more utilized as, uh, you know the slot guy and the receiver, as opposed to Hines, who played a lot more outside. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I def- I think there's a lot of similarities in their game too, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm just glad Juju's back for another year. That's that should help. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of people that would disagree with you, but <laughs> I mean, we'll we'll see. I mean, guy's got talent, obviously, but we'll see where it goes. Okay, so next one I have is in Super Bowl 9 and 10, the starting linebackers for the Steelers were Andy Russell, Jack Lambert, and Jack Ham. Russell retired after the 1976 season. Who was the linebacker that replaced Russell in Super Bowl 13? I believe that was Robin Cole. It wasn't uh, Super Bowl 13. That was actually 14. Oh, cool. so Cole didn't come in until 14. Hmm. So do you want to hear the other three options? Or yeah, yeah, go ahead give me the other options. Zach Valentine, Dennis Winston, or uh, Loren Towes? Uh, Dirt Winston. Loren Towes. Really? Yeah. Wow, God, I got it wrong twice. Wow, I don't remember that name. Yeah, I I never heard of him until I think it was about a year ago whenever I was talking to my uncle. I mean, he's a Steeler fan, too, and we were talking about some of the Super Bowls. And whenever I found out that Russell had actually retired after the first two Super Bowls, I kind of wondered, you know, who took his place because you never really hear about the third guy after he retired. And yeah, Lorenz House, at least in that Super Bowl, had came in and uh, won. But yeah, Robin Cole actually had came in for an injured Jack Ham in the Super Bowl 14. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I'm sure there was probably a good rotation, you know, throughout the season too, though. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gosh, I, I don't remember that name, but you know, dirt, dirt Winston and, uh, you know, Robin Cole, I definitely remember them playing in some Super Bowls and filling in for Russell, you know, after the Russell era, but the, yeah. good linebacking core they always have there. And Loren actually had, um, four Super Bowls. He was there for all of them. What, what's the last name? Toes, or I guess Taos. You could, um, that might be the pronunciation. Oh, you know what? I bet it's Taves. Is it T O E W T O W E S? I think you say it Taves. I think is how he said it. That's probably why I don't. Recognize. Oh, okay. I think that's it's something odd Pardon like that. Pardon me, a mispronunciation. No, no problem. I yeah. wouldn't have got it right anyway. I wouldn't. Have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was the, but um, he was the one that had replaced Russell afterwards. I don't remember what his jersey number was, but yeah, all the other guys were around that same era. Yeah, I remember it's Taves. On that same team. Okay. Cool. That makes sense. All right. What do you got? Okay. All right. This is uh this is going way back now. How many times have the Steelers had the number one overall pick in the NFL draft in the history of the league? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Here's your choices: five times, three times, 
six times or twice? I'm going to go six times. No, three times. I was kind of surprised by this. Yeah, you three figured times. early on. Yeah, uh, and it wasn't even super early. I mean, first time was 1942. They took Bullet Bill Dudley. Uh, 1956, Gary Glick. And 1970, Terry Bradshaw. Now, that's when they actually made the pick. They could have had the pick and traded out of it a few times. You know, it didn't really give me that. But uh, right. actually making the first pick was three times. That's incredible for, you know, for a franchise that's been around since 1933. And to be as, as crappy as they were for so long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, I was I was looking through like some of their because, you know, for a while, obviously, you know, they, they didn't have playoffs. You know, they just kind of had, you know, whoever had the best record. They were just, you know, the writers would just award them or the, the I guess maybe the NFL would just award them as the champion. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even like whenever they started the playoffs, you know, they just had so many years where they just did absolutely nothing. So right. that, that's incredible. I thought they would have had a lot more years with the first round pick than just three. Yeah, like I said, they might have had it a few other times and just traded out of the number one pick, or you know, who knows? But I, I couldn't see that that research. Just I could only see when they actually picked first. Yeah. All right. So in 2014, Ben Roethlisberger set an NFL record for 12 touchdowns in a two-game span. Who were the two opponents in these games? Was it? The Browns and the Bengals, the Ravens and the Texans, the Ravens and the Colts, or the Bills and the Browns? Well, I know definitely the Colts were involved, so you only had one choice of the Colts. So I'm going to say the Ravens and the Colts. You got it. That was the game where, uh, yeah, he had six touchdowns. I think he had 500 yards. Yeah. Really incredible. That was, that was, that was, that was, they had the, uh, their Bumblebee uniform. I love those uniforms. That's my favorite one. Oh, they did great in them, too. I mean, you had the bumblebee uniforms. You had the killer bees. You know, they should have played that a lot better, you know. (laughs) Yeah, for real. That was awesome. Yeah, they should have kept him around a lot longer. Although they did good in their other uh, throwback uniforms. The ones that uh, it was like the the ones that they have now, like the gold gold helmet or not the gold helmet, but as like the black or the um, gold outlining. Mm -hmm. I think they I mean, they had one. All the games that they had played in that uniform, they had won until last year when they lost to Buffalo. Or not last year, the year before with Duck Hodges on Sunday Night oh, Football. Okay. They, like yeah, they, they can't yeah. count that, though, when you have your four-string yeah. quarterback you know, playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As much as I liked Hodges, it just wasn't uh, wasn't the same. Yeah. All right. Um, this one's kind of a tricky one. All right. So listen carefully. Who was the head coach of the Steelers before Chuck Knoll? The coach that coached right before Knoll took over, the one he replaced. I'm sorry, your your choices. Uh, Ted Marchabroda, Bill Austin, Buddy Parker, Mike Nixon. I'm inclined to say it's between... Buddy Parker and Bill Austin. I'm going to go Bill Austin. You're right on the money. Got it. Yeah, uh, actually, Austin, Parker, and Mixon all were coaches. Marcha Broda did not coach the Steelers as a head coach, but he was their quarterback for some time. So, was he really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I can't remember who all was in the room. They had a great quarterback room in like the late 1950s. Johnny Unitas was in that quarterback room. 
Ted Marchabroda, I think Len Dawson might have been in there, and, mm-hmm. and somebody else, and they got rid of everybody. Unitas and Len Dawson, they traded, and you know they got rid of the other guy, and they kept uh, Ted Marchabroda, who was a great coach with the Colts, you know, uh, probably twenty years ago. But yeah. uh, good eye, they had, good eye for, they had a good eye for talent, right? Right, right. Yeah, good well, answer. So, so to go off the uh, Chuck Knoll train, so prior to becoming the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Chuck Knoll was a defensive coordinator for which franchise? The San Diego Chargers, the Cleveland Browns, the Baltimore Colts, or the Los Angeles Rams? Uh, this is almost unfair because I've had a lot of Colts history. So the Baltimore Colts worked under Don Shula. That's right. Worked, worked for Upton Bell. Upton Bell was the player personnel for the Colts during that era, so – yeah, I enjoyed the um, I enjoyed the part in his book where he's talking about when they were in the talent war with the AFL, mm-hmm. and he was at a college and he sees a player that he wants to recruit to Baltimore, but he sees an AFL representative try to get to him first, and I think the kids were like storming the crowd after a big game, and he yells at like one of the um the cops at the stadium. He's like, "Hey, grab that man! He just stole something." And uh, <laughs> the, and he goes over and tackles the talent scout for the AFL, and then he goes and gets the player. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a character i'll tell you what guys yeah. guy has so much energy I, I believe everything he tells me because it's he's uh he's a pistol yeah i can imagine i mean <laughs> after all the things he's seen man i'm sure he probably has a lot of uh stories that just run through his head and his memories but i mean just just think about that man's family i mean his i don't know i don't know if you heard the whole thing his grandfather was played and was on the football rules committee with Walter Camp. I did read that in his book, yeah. His father, you know, Burt Bell, founded, and his mother, who was a Hollywood starlet, founded the Philadelphia Eagles. They bought the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets at an auction, renamed them the Philadelphia Eagles. And he was also part owner of the Steelers in you know, the, the 40s for a little bit. You know, I, I don't know if it was during the combined time during the war. And yeah. then becomes the commissioner of the league and you know, has all those things. And then dies at a Steelers uh, Eagles game. <laughs> Burt Bell does. And his 21 year old son goes off on his own, gets a job with the Colts. And, you know, what a legend the Colts were in the 1960s and early seventies, you know, just a yeah. phenomenal life of a, a family. And I think also uh, Carol Rosenblum actually played with Burt Bell when they were both at college at uh, Penn, right? Yes. Yes. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting, interesting uh, history between them. Yeah, it definitely is. Interesting family. Okay. Next one I got. Okay, you're up, you're up. Yeah, I'm going to stay on that coaching train here that we're, we're on. Uh, okay, there were five men in the Pro Football Hall of Fame that were uh, head coaches of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Chuck Knoll, Bill Cower, and what two others from this list? Johnny Blood McNally. Charlie Trippy, Burt Bell, Walt Kiesling, Curly Lambeau, and Bill Dudley. So you have three of those names. Uh, Walt Kingsley and Bill Dudley. Well, you got you got. There's three of them that that are Hall of oh, Famers, th- coaches, Steelers. Uh, I can say the names again if you like. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Johnny Blood McNally, Charlie Trippy, Burt Bell, Walt Kiesling, Curly Lambeau, and Bill Dudley. Uh, Bell, Dudley, and Kiesling? 
got two of them, Bell and Kiesinger, right? Bill Dudley did not coach, but Johnny Blood McNally was a Steelers coach. Really? Yeah, I was surprised by see, seeing that. He's come up quite a bit on our, our football by numbers. You know, he's quite a character. Yeah. Was, he, was he a player coach back in those days, or did he, did he become a full-time coach after he retired? I'm not totally sure because it just listed who the head coach was of each season on that chart I looked at, and Johnny Blood McNally was their head coach for the season. Burt Bell was only for two games in 1941, and, uh, you know, of course, yeah, Keesling was for quite a while. And I just threw Curly Lambeau in there just because I need some more Hall of Famers. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd even know that. Uh, I didn't think that Bell was a coach, but I guess yeah, two games. I guess you count, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably that the Pittsburgh Steagles is probably that area. Yeah, mo- most likely. All right, this Steelers linebacker was the first player to be wired for NFL films. Andy Russell, Bill Saul, Ray May, or John Campbell. God, I, my first thought wasn't even on that list. Huh. What was your What was your first thought? I was thinking Lambert. Uh, just thinking all the the great little quips they have for him on NFL films. You know. Yeah. You know, now th- this came good. this came a solid time before him. Uh, I'm gonna go with Campbell. It is not Campbell. Wow, boy. Bill Saul. Bill Saul. Wow, I don't even know that name. Hmm. Yeah, he, he was the it was 1965 when they wired him and he eventually owned a bar in Maryland and his family now are Baltimore Ravens fans. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, NFL NFL films put out like a 5-minute clip however long ago, might have been a year or two ago, and uh it's his family like his grandkids watching the um, video and they're all like wearing like Ravens jerseys and hmm. talking about how much they love Terrell Suggs and everything like that. So that was kind of strange, but yeah, he was the first one to be mic'd up. Huh, that's, that's amazing. I mean, what, what a job that uh, Ed Sable and Steve Sable did to, you know, create NFL films and make it what it is and pass on that legacy with those, those folks are doing right now with that you know we just had uh, chris willis from nfl films on a couple of weeks ago on our podcast and yeah just some interesting stuff and all the the kind things he said about you know he's chris said that ed sable had just was retiring when he started you know 25 26 years ago but steve sable just the way he was on television uh you know being the nice guy that cares and you know kind words and everything he was just like that in real life too so that, that makes you feel pretty good when somebody's really like they are, you know, behind the camera as they are on camera. So, but yeah, great, great job by NFL films. Yeah. I, I think the Sables are just as influential to the, or just as uh, responsible for the success of the league as anybody else. And I know yeah. people might, I know people that might come off as me overstating it, but whenever I watch these films and obviously, you know, some people today may think it's a little outdated, um, but they really created this whole mythology around the game that I think people still buy into. I mean, obviously people don't compare them to gladiators or that they're going off to war, but people still have this very heroic and this very intense passion for the game that I don't think you're going to see replicated in other sports. And I think a lot of that is really because of the work they put into those films to kind of create this stigma around pro football. You know, Growing up in the 70s as a kid and being a humongous football fan on 
on football Sundays, you didn't have the pregame shows that started at nine o'clock in the morning. You know, we didn't have, we didn't have cable television, you know, back then where I lived, uh, you know, and your football coverage started about noon and it was just like, like the pregames today. But what you did have at 11 AM, you'd have NFL films, you know, this is the NFL. I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And you'd have the whole thing, the, the big, uh, drum music and, uh, you know, orchestra music playing and, uh, was it John Facenda or I think mm-hmm. that's how you say his name just with that that vo- voice and that tone and uh, the drama that he would build up just by getting you, know, you know, just watching the plays from the week before you know you know say Larry Zonka you know turning the corner plowing over a defender you know just just got you so pumped up watching that for an hour and then you get into the, the pregame is almost like a letdown and then you get into the games you're back up again but NFL films that's what I remember uh, NFL films really hooked me back then. Yeah, and it's it, they're strange because you can't really call them film. Well, you can't really call them documentaries because I think they're a little more than that. You know, they're not just trying to capture action on the field, right? I mean, their job is really to kind of sell the game, and they really create these very packaged um, sequences and scenes to have people buy into the game. And I think having that that what they could like the facenda what they call the voice of god and the slow motion capturing and quick cuts i really think that they really just did a masterful job and they had a small staff at the time you know nowadays nfl films you know has hundreds of employees i would imagine i mean they definitely have a couple hundred but you know back then i mean when you're talking about guys they probably started off with 10 15 guys that you know they all just kind of had a cross train with each other to figure out how do you edit how do you shoot how do you go about your writing process um so it's really it really is impressive to see the quality they put out at the time i mean it's i could watch those movies you know every day honestly i love them yeah and i I read it somewhere i can't remember whose book it was i read it in but they were saying ed sable he what his subjective was and and Steve sort of took it over that, that mantle was they wanted to show people what was going on at the games that wasn't really necessarily on the field. What was happening on the sideline? What was happening in the stands, you know, with the guy dressed up like a Viking, you know, what, uh, you know, but what was a coach saying? Well, a, a big play is going on. And that's really what captured the essence of the whole game and put the fans, you know, everywhere on the field. I mean, I, th- I think they really captured that and did a great job. And that was that's their magic, I think, the magic beans that they have, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, in a couple of their movies, like sometimes when they would do like the season in review, like 1974 or, um, you know, there was one Super Bowl, I think it was Super Bowl five. They started off with, like a fan at a ticket booth that's trying to get a ticket. You know, he claims that he called it in and uh, the lady at the gate, she says, no, we don't have your name here. And, you know, it's just, you know, five minutes of him arguing with her trying to get his ticket. And it's funny, you know, it seems like it seems weird that, you know, it shouldn't be this long, but it just fits for some reason. You know, it just sets a great stage. It shows just how valuable the Super Bowl had become to people to go in. So, yeah, they really did try to view it from like every vantage point and get every angle. So definitely indebted to them for what they've done. Yeah, absolutely. Great job. I forget whose turn it is now. Uh, it's your turn, yeah. <laughs> My turn. Okay. Tangent, yeah. <laughs> I got so excited about John Facenda and the Sables. All right. Um, who was – okay, this is one you want to listen to closely. Okay. Who was the first head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers? Art Rooney the first, Forrest Dowds, Burt Bell, Walt Keesling, or Joe Bach? 
think it was R. Rooney, wasn't it? No, he he was never down as a coach. Okay. Who are the other options? Forrest Dowds, Burt Bell, Walt Keesling, or Joe Bach. B A C H. Think I'm pronouncing Joe Bach. It no. No. It was oh. the first coach. Okay, the st- the Steelers were actually called the Pirates from '33 to 1939. Okay. Uh, Forrest Dowds was the first coach of the Pirates. Walt mm. Keesling in 1940 was the first coach of the newly named Steelers. So. So if you would have said Dowds, I would have gave it to you because you have coach of the franchise. Keesling was actually the first coach when they were actually the Steelers. Gotcha. Okay. Semantics. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, Walt Keesling, I thought for some reason was later on. I thought he was like, you know, after World War II, but no, I guess he was there before and during. Yeah. He was there for quite a, like a 10-year stretch there, right, during, right through the war, I think. Wow. Okay. All right, uh, next question. So prior to the Immaculate Reception game in 1972, the Steelers had one playoff appearance in their since their 1933 debut, and they lost 21 to nothing. Who did they lose to? Was it the New York Giants, the Washington Redskins, the Boston Yanks, or the Philadelphia Eagles? Hmm. I'm going to narrow this down. I think it's it's either the Eagles or the Giants. I think it was 1962. Um, I'm going to go with the Eagles. It is the Eagles, but it was actually uh, before 1962. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think it was. I think it was in the 40s, actually. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah. Off by a few decades there. <laughs> they still got the team. <laughs> okay. Um, now this is this is a interesting one. I was kind of surprised by this. What Steelers head coach has the best winning percentage as the franchise's head man? Current Steelers coach uh, Mike Tomlin, uh, Bill Cower, Jock Sutherland, or Chuck Knoll? I think it's Tomlin. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Tomlin has a 642. Average. I, the way I read those names off of, that's how that's how they're ranked. Chuck Knowles in fourth. He had a 5.66 winning percentage. Uh, Jock Sutherland, which I don't even know who that is, had a 5.91 winning percentage uh, with the team. And you know, Cower was 6.23. Uh, Tomlin 6.42 so far in his career. Yeah, I mean. And you know this better than I. No, really hit a kind of a rough period towards the end of his coaching career. Yeah. Yeah, and you start off uh, one in uh, 13 or whatever his first year, too, I think. Yeah. They were, they were pretty bad. But, uh, yeah, the, the bookend uh, of great seasons with, with some really bad teams. Did you ever see the um, America's Game documentary about the first Super Bowl they won? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've seen them all. And, uh, yeah, Andy Russell was talking about when um, Chuck Nolan first came to the team, and he said – um, you know, a lot of you guys aren't going to be here. Are you? I think he said, you know, the problem is that isn't that you guys aren't trying hard enough. Um, the problem is that you guys just aren't any good and you, most of you aren't going to be here next year. <laughs> I mean, talk about a guy that was just blunt. Yeah. They, uh, 
I guess actually I was reading, it might've been Don Shula's book. They were talking a little bit about, you know, cause you know, when Noel, like we just talked about earlier was an assistant coach under Shula and Noel was sort of that disciplinarian, uh, just I mean, a real hard ass where, where Shula was a little bit softer on the guys, even though he was a good coach and known, you know, for those stern, uh, Baltimore teams. But, uh, you know, Noel was like a real prick, I guess, is the best way to say it to the, the guys. Wasn't really a, a coach's coach, you know, a player's coach. And uh, when he went, he was hired by the Steelers to be that disciplinarian to try to put things in order. And I guess it was successful. It was a great experiment and it worked. <laughs> yeah, he definitely came from that same school of, uh, I think he played for Paul Brown. Because he played, right, I know right. he, he was a guard for the Browns for, I don't remember how long, but quite a few years. And yeah, I think that definitely rubbed off on him and i'm not sure if shula played for the browns i know he played for the colts briefly um but yeah like there are certain few guys that seem to be in that mold of very straight disciplinary and you know sad fundamental types you know they're not going to be the sort of creative genius that maybe bill walsh or tom landry were but they were going to make sure that whatever plays you knew you knew it like the back of your hand right right <laughs> You know, there was this famous famous moniker why, you know, no Steelers back in the era when Noel coached, uh, they didn't spike the ball or celebrate touchdowns. They said, you know, act like you've scored a touchdown before. And that was his motto. That's what he'd tell all the guys. Yeah. <laughs> nowadays, nowadays you're boring if you do that. Right. <laughs> all right, let's see. All right. In Pittsburgh Steelers history, there have been two defenders who are tied for the most touchdowns by a defensive player with five touchdowns. Who are the two players? Is it Chad Scott and Troy Polamalu, Dwayne Washington and Mel Blunt, William Gay and Rod Woodson, or Leaf Flowers and Carnell Lake? What was the second last one you said? William Woodson. Gay and Rod Woodson. I'm going to go with William Gay and Rod Woodson. Yeah. Yeah, that, that one's kind of obscure enough where you figure it actually might be true. Yeah, I know. I know Woodson was up there, and I I know from a few years ago when uh, Gay scored that touchdown two or three years ago, they said he was up up there with five touchdowns. So, yeah, yeah good question. Like, I think it was against like Cincinnati or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a good he was a good nickelback for, for a while. He played his role well. Yeah, yeah. You said yeah. quite a few in there that were great nickelbacks. You know, Carnal Carnal Lake was a, a great. Uh, cornerback yeah. and safety you know from yeah. his era and uh, washington was good too washington yeah he was tough he was tough yeah. one of the he's kind of like one of those 90s guys that are kind of like overlooked yeah, they were, right. he was kind of like him and like lee flowers were kind of like in between that like that super bowl 95 team and the eventual uh 2005 champions so they're kind right. of like lost over in that time yeah but they, those guys love to hit though <laughs> and yeah, bring the wood no, no doubt about that all right, this one's a little bit easier for you. This will be a softball for you. There have been two Steelers assistant coaches that have moved on to become Super Bowl winning head coaches with another team. Who are they? Choices, John Harbaugh, Dick LeBeau, Bruce Arians, Bud Carson, Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy and Bruce Arians. Yep, I figure it's a softball for you. That's- but Bud Carson was the uh, he wanted to become the coach of the uh, Browns, right? I think he, yeah, he was with the Browns for a while. He might have been with the Eagles possibly too. He yeah. was a defensive coordinator during the seventies. Those great Super Bowl teams. Yeah, kind of like the precursor to that, like Tampa two defense. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 
All right, so James Harrison is the Steelers' all-time sack leader with 80 and a half sacks. The next player closest to him has 77 sacks. Who is this player? Is it Joey Porter, Greg Lloyd, Jason Gilden, or Lamar Woodley? Hmm. I'm going to go with Lloyd. Jason Gilden. Really? Yeah. Huh. Both both wore 92. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's kind of like another one of those guys that were like Lee Flowers in Washington, kind of like in that in-between era. He, you know, it, that brings up something interesting. I was doing research. I was trying to figure out a way to put it in a question. I just couldn't do it because I didn't have actual uh, hard facts. But I, I got uh, – I, I told you I talked to Chris Willis not too long ago, and he was writing – he writes on a website called uh, Pro Football Journal. And okay. that, and that uh, site is run by a guy by the name of John Turney. And I spoke on the phone with John Turney a, a few weeks ago and got a little bit familiar with the Pro Football Journal – and what these guys do is they go back and look at uh, old newspaper clippings and, you know, box scores and watch tape and everything. And they go back and grab some of those stats, like sacks weren't official until 1982. They go back in prior eras and put sacks onto people. And I, was, I found it interesting. I, according to John Turney on Pro Football Journal, uh, there's a player that has more sacks than, uh, how many did you say Harrison had? 80 and a half. 80 and a half. And L.C. Greenwood, they have down unofficially 82 and a half sacks, which shocked me. I mean, more yeah. than, than Mean Joe Green that was on that same defensive line. L.C. Greenwood you know, was a beast. You know, in a time before the, the sack was a stat, you know, unofficially 82. Well, his uh, I think unofficially, too, he also holds the most sacks in a Super Bowl, right? I, yeah, I believe so. I believe I think so. he has like four sacks or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have to wonder why they don't go back and look at that as an official. You, you you would think now with NFL films and just the newspaper clippings, people could piece together who actually has you know, the sack, sack numbers from back then. I, I think they're a little bit of afraid of a couple things. I mean, first, first place, you know, television came in in, what, the 50s to have games. And you only had one or two cameras on it. Uh, so you might not see it in a big, you know, big play. You might not get the camera might not be on a quarterback getting sacked. It might be, you know, somewhere it shouldn't be watching. I think that you have the AFL merger sort of, I mean, that sort of clouds the issues on some of those uh, statistics. Cause what if you had somebody that played for, you know, uh, and the jets or something that uh, started off in the mid sixties, but had a lot of sacks. Well, what do you do with that person? And I think that's sort of the kind of what they're worried about, but uh, guys like John Turney, they're, you know, they're watching tape and, you know, going through old books and everything and getting these numbers. I don't know how they do it, but it's amazing what they have on there. Yeah, they do good work. I've been on that website a few times. I've seen the um, – I was on a website that – I was on a blog post they had about, like, the greatest nose guards in the history mm-hmm. of the NFL, and they had guys right. on there that I would just have, have never have guessed were on there. I mean, they had, like, your conventional guys like the Ted Washingtons, the Casey Hamp, and Vince Wilford, but some, like, Curly Culp. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. him. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I he, he was a guy I wasn't really familiar with. And they go, they do some pretty good breakdown. And they were talking about like, um, like Carl Mac, uh, Mecklenburg for the, um, the old Broncos linebacker, but really he played like every position, like in the, um, uh, front seven, but they even went deeper in that, like showed like which techniques he played. Like he played, uh, you know, head up on the, the nose. Then he played, uh, you know, a three technique 
in a 4-3. And then, you know, they showed basically every front that he's played in, everywhere he's butched the line. So, yeah, they do a lot of good research over there. Yeah. I don't know if you heard, uh, just when you mentioned Mecklenburg, Arnie Chapman just interviewed Mecklenburg probably I did. a month ago. I mean, what I a, it, yeah. I, I, that guy was chuckling the whole time and just, you could tell yeah, he loved, loves, loves his career and loved what he did. You know, great guy. I was never a Broncos fan, but he sort of made me a fan of him just by him talking, you know? You know, after I, after I listened to Arnie's interview with him, I actually went back and watched the, um, the, the drive with, um, I shot a, no, if it was the fumble happened in Denver, right? And uh, the drive I ended. Tell you. I, I, I can't remember. The drive was, was in which. Cleveland. I know that. I'm not sure. Okay, so I watched the one that was in Cleveland because I remember in our last episode when you were talking about the Roman Coliseum look of Cleveland Municipal Stadium, mm-hmm. and I remember this was there. And there was also this. Uh, there was a fan that had a fish hook with a John Elway doll wrapped at the end of it. And he's in the stands just waving it, and I'm just like, man, what a different time. Uh, but, yeah, I went back and watched the the game with uh, Carl because I never really seen any of his games, and, yeah, he was an impressive player, very much so, yeah. Big guy. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank okay. you. All right, this one's kind of a an oddball one. But uh, what is the reason the Steelers' emblem is only on one side of their helmet? Here's your choices. They have a limited contract to use the U.S. steel emblem. The team only wants one sideline to see them each quarter of their emblem for psychological advantage. The superstition of keeping it that way after the first temporary trial season of using the emblem, and they made the playoffs. Half of the board of directors wanted the helmet emblem, and half of them did not. So that was the compromise. They only put it on half the helmet. Uh, the compromise? No, it's the superstition. Uh, At 1962 season, they had the yellow helmets, and they were looking for the emblem, so they went to U.S. Steel, asked U.S. Steel if they could use that emblem because that was the biggest steel supplier at the time in the Pittsburgh area. So uh, they granted the Roonies that choice to do that, and they weren't sure how the fans were going to react because they never had an emblem on the the helmet before. So they they told uh, uh, the gentleman that was in charge of the – equipment manager jack hart uh to put the logo only on the right side of the helmets and in that year 1962 the team finished nine and five qualified for the playoffs and there's their winningest season in franchise history up to that date so they just kept it that way said hey that's our good luck charm we're staying with it why not yeah of course yeah it seemed it seemed that was like an answer that had either a quirk where you had half the board that didn't want it and half did. So they just decided to put on one or it was just superstitious. Yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to use my imagination, come up with the ones to throw you off the trail a little bit. <laughs> oh, it was believable. So more power to you. All right. This Steelers receiver was the first player to accumulate over 200 receiving yards in a game for the franchise. It's either Buddy Dial, Heinz Ward, Plaxico Burris, or Yancey Thigpen. I'm going to go with Thigpen. Buddy Dial. Buddy Dial did. Wow. Yeah, hmm. it was uh, 235 yards against the Cleveland Browns. But what year was that that he played? It had to be uh, the 50s, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was 1952, I want to say. He played a year with another team. I think he played a year with the Giants first, and then he came over to Pittsburgh. And I think, like, the sixth game of that, his sixth game as a Steeler, he had, like, that big game. Man, you think about that. There's, I mean, think about the 1950s. Most of the times, 
quarterbacks didn't have 200 yards passing in a game and you have a guy catching 200 yards receiving that's phenomenal for a 1950s game well i gotta think too like the quarterback probably i mean if he had 235 yards passing to buddy dial he probably only had probably about 250 yards total yeah i would have to think he was probably just so wide open that he just kept going to him could be or yeah, because back then it seems like, you know, if you were just – they pretty much just had the deep ball to go off of. And if a receiver, I guess, just had an incredible day, that's what he that's what he could produce. And, you know, the defenses they were going at the time weren't too intricate, so. Did, I, I, did you have the score of that game? Did the Steelers lose that I game didn't. against the Browns? I, I, I wonder if the they, were, they were down and they were trying to come back the whole game and so they're just airing it out, you know, like teams do now, you know. It's very be. possible. See, when I first came up with this question, I actually thought Plaxico Burris was going to be my answer because whenever I was rewatching some of the highlights that he had against the uh, Falcons in 2002, I don't know if you remember that game. He had like uh, it was like the overtime game that ended in a tie and he lands like at the one yard line and he ended up having like 253 yards. And I think that was the red the, the game that broke the Steelers record, Buddy's record. Was it that the Michael Vick, the quarterback for the Falcons? Yeah. Was it, was that before him? Yeah, I think it was. And that's when he was yeah. in his, uh, like his second year or something, just tearing the league yeah. up. Yeah. It was it an was, exciting uh, game. Yeah, Pittsburgh was leading for a while. And, uh, yeah, it, that was a fun game. Definitely definitely an interesting season. Like Maddox's first year, they had some wild games that year. Yeah, they sure did. Especially that Browns playoff game. That was crazy. Oh, it's one of my it's one of my favorite games ever. Oh, mine too. Mine too. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> What was it? Uh, what was the receiver's name um, that dropped the ball that the Cleveland could have won? Uh, North Northrop, North yep. North North Cross or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, right. Yeah, he could have won the game for them. <laughs> oh boy! All right. Uh, the first Steelers radio broadcast took place on October fifteenth, nineteen thirty-three, as only the away games were broadcast in those seasons. When was the first and also, those games that they broadcast, the announcers weren't at the stadium. They were because they didn't have the equipment. So they were back at their station and they were doing like ticker tape or Morse code, somebody at the stadium feeding them the information. They were pretending that they were staying alive. So when was the first live in-stadium game broadcast on the radio? And here's your choices. October 1st, 1935 against the Eagles. Uh Night, September 14th, 1939, against the Brooklyn Dodgers football team. September 6th, 1937, against the Eagles. Or September 13th, 1938, against the Giants. What was the second option? Uh, September 14th, 1939, Steelers at the Brooklyn Dodgers. I'm going to go with that one. Yep, that's correct. That's the first uh time they had live things because brooklyn the baseball stadium for the brooklyn dodgers baseball team uh ended up at Devitt's field they had the uh wherewithal to have some equipment that the they let the away team use to to broadcast radio so that's kind of interesting and i guess it was that next season 1940s when they started doing the home games on the radio too the steelers were worried about if you did radio games for home games nobody would go to the games and probably the, the way uh you know people went to games back then it probably could have been right too yeah it seems that's always been a sort of paranoia that the league has had right i mean whether it's radio television or especially now with just the abundance of uh you know like streaming like streaming options and everything like that you know there's just and how incredible tvs are i mean you really have to kind of you know make people really want to come out to games 
Right. But it's just amazing. I mean, because all the the big early uh, radio advancements for radio broadcasting happened around the Pittsburgh area. You know, KDKA was the first mm. nationally uh, yeah. broadcasting radio station. And there's some, I think they had the first uh, Pitt Panthers or uh, West Virginia. Some, one of those was the first uh, football game ever broadcast on radio somewhere down in that area. You know, so there's there a lot of uh, radio things happening. So I'm kind of surprised the Steelers weren't more, uh, you know, having in stadium, uh, broadcasters till 1939 that's kind of weird yeah that is weird i also think it's interesting too like going to the brooklyn dodgers how like a lot of teams basically just named the football team after the baseball team oh yeah you you think of it with the giants but i mean you know there was a at one point there was like the new york football yankees Mm -hmm. that you had the dodgers and um pittsburgh uh, pirates (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so it's it's interesting that there was a I don't know if it was just because they figured that maybe they would just sell tickets or if there was just a lack of originality, but I mean, uh, just the way things were, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't know how they broadcast a game by getting you know, ticker tape coming over. You see those big glass bubble things and the ticker tapes coming on for the stock market back in the uh, true, yeah. That's how yeah. they were doing the games back in the stadium. How would you do that? That's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah we've come a long way. <laughs> All right, this Steelers player was the first Steelers defender to intercept a Tom Brady pass. Deshae Townsend, James Ferrier, Chris Hope, or Ike Taylor? Well, I'm going to probably Ixnay Taylor because he had sort of hands of stone. He didn't have too many interceptions. Uh, boy, Hope is intriguing. So is Ferrier. And Deshae Townsend was the other one? Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be somebody odd, like our linebacker. I'm going to go with Farrier. It was Deshae Townsend. Was it really? Ah, and Yeah, I, and you know what? Ike Taylor in that same game actually intercepted Brady. Did he really? That ah. was his first interception ever. Yeah, he was a uh, he was a backup corner. I don't know if he was a rookie, if he was a second year, but that was the game that uh, in 2004 when uh, New England was on their 21-game win streak. And... Pittsburgh got off to a hot start. I mean, they uh, came over at all often forced a fumble on Brady after Pittsburgh just went and scored a touchdown. Plaxico had two first quarter touchdowns for Ben. And then Brady threw a pick six to Shea Townsend. And that was the first interception he ever threw against Pittsburgh. Oh, no kidding. And then wow. in the second qu- and then the second quarter he tried a uh, like a bomb to Bethel Johnson and Ike Taylor jumped up and got the pick. <laughs> but that was actually that was actually the last interception Brady threw against Pittsburgh until that 2017 Jesse James game where uh, Vince Williams picked him off. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think he definitely never forgot that game. But no, he had a great run against us for sure. Yeah. yeah Tore no him up. All right. Uh it's kind of a interesting one here for you. The Steelers and what two other teams changed conferences in 1970 after the AFL merged with the NFL? Uh, who were they? You know, I got some choices for you. The Miami Dolphins and the Browns, the Dolphins and the Patriots, the Patriots and the Browns, the Browns and the Colts, or the Seahawks and the Chiefs? The Browns and the Colts. Yep, you're right. Go ahead. They were pretty hostile towards the move, too, from what I understand. Well, not the Steelers, but the Colts were especially. Yeah, the, the Colts really didn't want to leave, but the Steelers and Browns, they said, hey, you know what? We want it. We've been rivals for so long. Uh, 
we'll stay stay together and we'll we'll go over to the AFC because they would have been an unbalance of teams. They had 16 NFL teams and only 12 uh, AFL teams since they had yeah. an equal amount to make, you know, the 14 on each side. So, or whatever, maybe with 11 and whatever, but <laughs> they figured the math out somehow. <laughs> Did you ever watch the um, the documentary on Showtime, uh, Full Color Football? No, I don't think I've ever seen that one. Oh, you have to watch it. It's an incredible documentary. It's five parts, and it's about the the rivalry between the AFL and the NFL. And hmm. you have a lot of, um, you know, like John Madden was interviewed, Bill Belichick was interviewed, and I can't remember when it was. I think it must have been like 2009, 2010. Um, okay. and basically, yeah, it's basically like a five part that kind of details like the rivalry about, you know, Lamar Hunt starting the foolish club and basically how the NFL try to basically counteract, you know, the competition. You know, they talk about like after JFK was assassinated, how the NFL decided to play games, how the AFL decided to cancel games that week or postpone them. So it, it's really interesting uh, to talk yeah. about the rivalry and everything like that. I mean, a lot of the information you probably have already read in books and everything like that, but it's cool to see like the visual comparison with it and to hear from some people who were, um, you know, kind of firsthand involved with it. Huh. I'll have to look that one up and watch it. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. NFL network, I think aired it after showtime. Um, but they have some funny stories. Like it talks about like the Boston Patriots, like drafted a dead guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it it really shows how dysfunctional all was in the beginning. But yeah, you know, it's 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 a great story though. You know, if you, especially if you're a fan of that era and of just NFL history. Yeah, wow, it does sound good. Okay, what nickname did offensive lineman Ray Mansfield give to his quarterback Terry Hanratty? The Rat, the Leprechaun, Hand the Man, or Yosemite Sam? Hmm. It's probably not the obvious choice to hand the man. Um, I'm going to go with the rat just for something different. That was his nickname in high school and in college, but the specific nickname that Ray Mansfield gave him was Yosemite Sam because really? of that mustache and that hook nose. Yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> I guess that's a, that is a good one to, to call him. Mansfield was quite a character from uh, just here. I don't know if uh, you get the broadcast on the um, Steelers Nation radio, uh, but, you know, Tunch Ilkin and um, Craig Wolfley have a show almost every day from like 10 to 11, 10 a.m. to noon. And okay. they talk about all the, you know, just, they came in that era, you know, the right at the end, near the end of Chuck Knoll. They played they played for Chuck Knoll their whole careers. But you know, some of those older guys, you know, like Webster and you know some of those guys, and uh, you know, they have some great stories of, of some of them. You know, they might have been Mansfield might have been a little bit before them, but I'm sure like Webster and Kolb and all those guys, you know, told them about him. So kind of an oh, interesting yeah. program. Every I'm day sure, around. and and I'm sure Mansfield probably wasn't too far away from those guys after that after he retired. I mean, I, I, mean yeah. I'm, I would imagine he probably stuck around Pittsburgh for a little while. But yeah, yeah. those guys, you know, that was back in the time, man, where, you know, it's kind of like we talked about last time where they were just part of like the overall Pittsburgh community. There was really mm -hmm. no, you know, nothing to separate. So they probably right. had some funny stories of them, like just going out around town. Right. Had some real characters on those teams. But, yeah. I mean, Tunch, Tunch Ilkin and uh, Craig Wolfley are real characters themselves. But uh, yeah, I'm the, they uh, did. I haven't listened to their show. I, I know there's one other guy who does a show um, with the Steelers Radio Network, uh, Matt Williamson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's yeah. 
I listen to him sometimes when he's on Mark Madden's show. Okay. Yeah, he'll he'll come on and do like a breakdown of the games of the uh you know the weekend. Uh, but yeah, he's an intelligent guy. But they have some good stuff on the Steelers website and the radio network, so I'll definitely have to check those guys out. Yeah, that's, you you enjoy it. It's a good it's a good time. All right, here's my final question for you. The Steelers won six AFC Central Division titles from 1974 to 1979. What team dethroned Pittsburgh to win the AFC Central title in 1980? And I got some choices that were in the Central. Baltimore, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Houston, or Jacksonville? I'm going to say it's either Houston or Cincinnati. I'm going to go Cincinnati. Nope, the Cleveland Browns won the division in 1980. Was Brian Sipe the quarterback? Yeah, I think it was Sipe, and you had uh, uh, the two Pruitts in the backfield, Greg Pruitt and Mike Pruitt in the backfield. They had some good teams. Back uh, I, I, I would have thought it was Cincinnati because I think the year after that they went to the uh, Super Bowl, right? Yeah, I would I would probably guess that too. Or, I mean, Houston played uh, two AFC Championships games in a row. I mean, this is a year after the Steelers – beat the the rams in the super yeah. bowl they, they yeah. won in, they won the super bowl in 1980 so that 1980 season they were the super bowl champs and they did not win the division but uh yeah houston they played you know two afc championship games against cincinnati was coming on strong in the early 80s uh but no it was Cle- the cleveland browns won the division wow and of course wow. you know baltimore ravens and jacksonville weren't uh, franchises yet so yeah well speaking of uh speaking of cleveland here's my last question Okay. Who was who was the most recent Steeler to catch a touchdown pass? Is it Eric Ebron, Juju Smith-Schuster, James Conner, or Chase Claypool? Oh boy! So it would have been in that playoff game that they got shellacked that, uh, yeah. or Ben threw for like 501 yards at the end. Uh, I'm gonna go with Ebron. Claypool. Claypool. Uh, wrong big guy. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? They, I was reading something today, and I couldn't figure out how to put it into a question. But talking about the the AFC North right now, all the teams except for the Steelers have a connection, a direct connection to uh, Cleveland Browns. You know, the Cleveland Browns were named after Paul Brown. Paul Brown was dismissed as the Browns coach, started up the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, you know, and he was their head coach for quite a while, an owner. Um, the Baltimore Ravens were the former Cleveland Browns that were named after uh, Paul right. Brown. So the Steelers are the only one in the AFC Central, or I'm sorry, AFC North that are not a direct uh, derivative of Paul Brown. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the Paul wow, Brown. that's interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that. The other thing is the AFC North is the only division in the AFC that doesn't have a charter member of the AFL in it. The, the Bengals were in the AFL, but they didn't come in until 1968. So original charter member, but every other AFC uh, division has an original charter member. You know, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs, and which were the Dallas Texans. Uh, yeah. Uh, wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I didn't either until I was reading it today. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, those, those little tidbits of history that you'll never think about, but interesting once you hear it, because then it makes the total sense, yeah. Are you uh, excited about Ben coming back? 
I am. I'd I'd like to see him with his last hurrah. And I'm All right, man. Do you want to tell everybody where they can uh, get your um, podcast and yeah, website? Uh, yeah, pigskindispatch.com. Uh, we have the podcast on there every day along with a blog every day, or at least one or two blogs and podcasts. Uh, Twitter, you know, it's at Pigskin Dispatch. Uh, Facebook, Pigskin Dispatch. Uh, just a lot of Pigskin Dispatch. Uh, but we've been trying something new that I encourage uh, people to do. Going on Reddit, you know, Reddit users, uh, there's a an R Sports History uh, subreddit. And I've been posting in there quite a bit, too, as Pixie and Dispatch. But uh, I encourage it. You know, and, of course, sportshistorynetwork.com.